Hello and welcome to Global Digital Futures Podcast, brought to you by SOAS Coding Club. I'm your host, Chipo Mapondera, and you're listening to SOAS Radio. This week, we welcome Ronan Lee to speak about the Rohingya crisis and the role of media in conflict. Ronan Lee is an Irish-Australian political advisor who completed his PhD at Deakin University researching Rohingya history and identity. Ronan has travelled extensively in Myanmar, first visiting the country to witness the political changes associated with its transition from direct military rule to a quasi-civilian government. He witnessed Myanmar's 2010 general election and met with the opposition leader Aung San Suu Kyi shortly after her release from house arrest. Ronan has provided comment for the BBC, Al Jazeera, Time and The Guardian and has written widely about Myanmar. Hi Ronan, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. So after your visiting lecture here at SOAS, it was really so interesting. You gave such a broad and detailed history into, you know, Myanmar as a country and the Rohingya crisis. And what I came away with is just how complicated the situation is. Can you give us a brief history specifically on the Rohingyas in Myanmar and why this has become a crisis today? Sure can. Well, like any crisis that involves gross human rights violations, the causes, both historic and more proximate, are always complex. But At the end of it all, they're always very simple as well. I mean, this is a crisis that's been created by humans. And I think it's important that we understand that this isn't a result of a natural disaster or circumstances beyond the control of the authorities in Myanmar. This is a crisis that was created by Myanmar's authorities. Uh, The Rohingya are a Muslim minority. Myanmar is an overwhelmingly Buddhist country. But about 4% of Myanmar are Muslim. The Rohingya are a minority among the Muslims in Myanmar, but they are mostly living in the western part of the country. So the part of Myanmar that is adjacent to Bangladesh, mostly living in an area of Myanmar known as Rakhine State. And the old name for Rakhine was Arakan. And Arakan historically was was a kingdom that was, in fact, very independent in sovereign terms for a a long, long time and was invaded by the Burmese in the late 18th century, just 40 years before British colonialism came to Burma. So that was the part of the country where the Rohingya had lived for a long time. They claim a heritage in that area that goes back to the 8th century. But whether or not their history is the 8th century or the 9th century, the simple reality is that there was a substantial Muslim population in that area well before the Burmese arrived in Arakan and certainly well before British colonialism in Burma. So the Rohingya are a people of Western Myanmar. The people that I spoke to in that community, both in Myanmar, in camps in Bangladesh and among the diaspora, talked very proudly of their connection with Burma, with Myanmar. They consider themselves part of the national fabric. And one of their great concerns, separate to human rights concerns, is that they want to be part of the national fabric. They want to be contributors to Myanmar. Democracy came up a lot in my research. They talked a lot about how democracy should work and that people should be able to have a say, and they want to contribute to that. Colonialism wasn't a great thing for Burma, for Myanmar. No surprises there. And the legacy of colonialism continues to loom pretty heavily in the politics of Myanmar. Burma, as it was then, became independent in from the British in 1948 and was democratic at that time, until effectively until 1962, when a, a military coup 
ended what had been a a tumultuous democracy. But Myanmar is not a homogenous society. And when it became independent, there were lots of groups in the post-World War II period who considered that they'd been offered their own independence. And virtually from the moment the country became independent, there were uprisings involving ethnic minority groups. Democracy ended in 1962, and a military came to power that reframed how independent Myanmar should be. And it, it considered its role as holding the country together against those that might want to tear it apart. And primarily that was anyone that talked about increased independence for their people, even to the extent that very reasonable expressions of ethnic pride within Myanmar were interpreted by the military as almost rebellious. So did the Rohingyas stand out as as being particularly outspoken? Uh, Not as particularly outspoken, but they stood out as being particularly not Buddhist because they're not. And while the military were in power, they weren't they weren't secular in a sense. I mean, they, they might talk in those terms, but generals would regularly donate to Buddhist monasteries. They'd have photographs taken with prominent monks. So the internal politics of the country is very Buddhist, so that the institutions that were powerful within Myanmar, the military and the monkhood, in a sense, one was used by the other. And the military very much used notions of Buddhism and loyalty to the nation and should be as a Buddhist. So anyone who wasn't, so includes a large proportion of ethnic minorities who are really around, predominantly around the fringes of the country. Christians, the Karen and the Kachin, the Shan, the Chin. And then the Rohingya, as a Muslim group, really stood out. There was a real change in how the politics of the country worked. So it became one where ethnic minorities were increasingly treated with suspicion and key rights were guaranteed if you were part of the ethnic majority. So the largest ethnic group, the Bama, a overwhelmingly Buddhist group, if you were part of that group, that's where you would get opportunities for employment. Over that period, the military ceased to be a place where ethnic minorities would be comfortable, often because the military was engaged in active warfare with ethnic minority groups. And as we move towards uh, more recent times, restrictions started to be placed on people's ability to travel around the country. And one of the groups that suffered the most from that was uh, the Rohingya Muslims. So travel restrictions arrived throughout the 70s and became much, much more strict as time went by. So what would appear to be a benign requirement at first to register your movements if you were going to Rangoon, for instance, then became a requirement that you must get permission to travel to Rangoon and so on. By 2015, for Rohingya to move from one village to another costs money and requires permission. And it was about restricting restricting the Rohingya to their communities. And it broke the link between the Rohingya Muslims and the rest of the country. So when you talk to people in Yangon and you ask them, you know, what are your attitudes towards Muslims or Rohingyas? Then you ask, have you ever met? Um, the answer is invariably no. And as you speak of sort of links and maybe even information, what was the media climate in this time and how has that changed over time? An utterly repressive media environment, very strict censorship, strict to the extent that pre-publication censorship of newspapers. So if you were a journalist writing a news story, you submitted your draft, in fact, they'd lay out the newspaper and you'd submit the print-ready newspaper to the censors. And you'd hope that 
they don't change it before publication and if they do you'd have to put something else in and get approval for that or you'd have to change what you'd put in or as happened many times a blank space appears in the front page so very repressive people also understood that there were punishments for being critical of the military important to note in the modern times where the internet is so much a part of our lives that the internet really didn't come to Myanmar until 2012 in any meaningful way. It was possible to access the internet, certainly as a tourist, there'd be tourist hotels, you'd be able to access very poor internet prior to that, but not in any meaningful way. And you wouldn't be communicating with people domestically. That wasn't something that was accessible to the community. Mobile phones didn't come to Myanmar till 2012. And what was the... I remember you speaking about even the cost of having a mobile phone. Yeah, so so at a time when average household income in Myanmar m- might have been about 300 US dollars annually, a SIM card could cost you 2000 US dollars if you were able to buy one. So that was the cost, but it was not readily available. So the idea that a village somewhere might club together and you know, buy a SIM to be able to communicate with the world. I mean, it wasn't like that at all. They wouldn't have been able to do that. So a very repressive media environment. So a lot of things would would happen in the world and people in Myanmar just wouldn't be able to see what was going on. I Uh, imagine a lot of things would happen in the country as well. And totally people would not be privy to that information. And that was a strategy that an oppressive government used. Everything was always happy. The official view that everything was wonderful and this was a strong economy run by competent, people, but the reality around people didn't reflect that. You can tell when your community is becoming poorer over time. And how did that change following the appointment of the democratic government? Well, oddly enough, a couple of things happened that were significant, that really scared the generals. One was the arrival of, as, as a political player, one was the arrival of Aung San Suu Kyi. She's the daughter of the founder of Myanmar's military, so the country's independence hero, General Aung San. The foundation myth of modern Myanmar is very much that the creator of the country is General Aung San. That's who people talk about. So his daughter is revered within Myanmar. There'd been a popular uprising in 1988. Aung San Suu Kyi happened to be in the country at that time. So her mother was sick and she was there to help her mother. Um, There'd been an election then that was reluctantly agreed to, I think, by the generals. And they were very surprised that they were overwhelmingly defeated in 1990. And their response was simply to ignore the election and to arrest and lock up those who should have been running the country and should have been in parliament. Aung San Suu Kyi started what was virtually two decades of house arrest. There was an election in 2010 under the rules of the constitution with 25% of seats reserved for serving military and an effective constitutional veto uh, handed to the military. The head of Myanmar's military doesn't answer to the civilian authorities. They are literally a lawn to themselves. An ex-general became the new president and actually did take some steps to liberalise aspects of politics and the media. He released a large number of political prisoners. Aung San Suu Kyi became free to participate in politics. Mobile phones became available. Pre-press censorship effectively ended at that time. So there was a great opening up of the country and, and very high expectations about what that would mean. But, but a great concern was that what hadn't been dealt with was there were a lot of animosity within the country. There were anger at the military, anger at groups that were perceived to have benefited during military rule, anger at groups that were perceived to have benefited from colonial rule. People perceived as foreign, people with different religions quite often, 
people who look different. And that's what has contributed greatly to current rights violations against groups like the Rohingya. It sounds like there's a huge sort of tension around the civilian government and the military in terms of power structures, maybe. So how does that affect Aung San Suu Kyi's position, especially considering the Rohingya crisis and her position and maybe silence on it? So she came to power at an election in 2015 and came into parliament, uh, but came into a parliament where 25% of seats are reserved for serving military. The military is a, an incredibly influential player in the in the democratic politics of the country, but it's also a player in terms of the economy and in terms of law and order within the country. You'd almost describe them as a co-equal part, if not more equal than the civilian authorities in many ways in terms of their influence within the country. But on Aung San came to power at a time where, between 2012 and 2015, a range of animosities that had existed for a long time, lots of people who'd been released from prison for being democratic activists were able to participate in, in politics, but there were some people who'd been in prison as political prisoners for inciting religious hatred. They were released too. One of those is a nationalist monk called Waratu, who's a vile character, described by Time magazine as the face of Buddhist terror. He's just an awful individual and he has a philosophical view that the Buddhist character of Myanmar is an existential threat from destruction by other religions, principally Islam. Consider 4% of Myanmar is Muslim. He launched a campaign to restrict Muslim rights and through various organisations campaigned throughout the country for policies and practices that would restrict Muslim rights. At the 2015 election, it's important to note that in that context, neither the military-aligned party Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy party didn't field a single Muslim candidate. The fear was if you were seen as being soft on rights for Muslims, you'd be attacked by nationalist monks as not appropriately defending Buddhism. So can you speak a little bit about how this rhetoric by the nationalist monks spread primarily using digital media like Facebook? So prior to 2012, they'd give talks in monasteries and villages DVDs were a really common thing that you would see on the street where someone would videotape the monk giving the sermon and then the DVD would be sold or distributed. And that was a way of communicating their message. But from 2012 onwards, that changed dramatically. All of a sudden, Waratu could access Facebook and could communicate with half a million people with the click of a mouse. And he did that. Facebook came to Myanmar at the same time as the internet. They arrived concurrently. But for practical purposes, the way Facebook entered Myanmar was to seek market share very quickly, often unmetered access. I mean, a very poor country where people used to pay two grand for a SIM, now you can pay a dollar and buy a SIM. So people could buy a SIM card, could access the internet, but the phone would often come with Facebook preloaded. You'd have a Facebook profile that was created for you by the mobile phone shop, and Facebook might be metered so you'd be able to communicate with friends and family and not really have to pay for as much credit. So today in Myanmar, the terms Facebook and the internet are often used interchangeably. People don't make the distinction in the way that certainly in a, in a country like the UK, we would talk about the internet and then we would talk about Facebook as an aspect of that. In Myanmar, it's the same. So tools like Facebook are about sharing your views and often with large numbers of people. And all of a sudden, a country that had 50 years virtually, I mean, decades of repressive military rule, restrictions on media, 
restrictions on freedom of expression, all of a sudden has Facebook and the ability to do and say anything they want. So quite often people would believe what they were told. I mean, I'm not suggesting that it meant that they were utterly media illiterate, but quite often very plausible things would be circulated on Facebook about ethnic minorities, particularly about Muslims, and a moral panic was created and reflected by uh, laws going through the parliament prior to Aung San Suu Kyi's time as the dominant party, but laws that restricted Muslim rights, but that haven't been rescinded. And that's the political context. And can you speak a little bit about the military's media strategy on Facebook? Well, they've been outed by, I think it was the New York Times, as running sort of large hothouses of staff making pro-military posts on social media. So the sort of thing that you hear talk of in parts of Russia and elsewhere to interfere in the domestic politics of other countries. Uh, The interesting thing in Myanmar was this was the country's military with, I mean, the estimates are about 600 people involved in this enterprise running Facebook accounts, Twitter accounts and so on, promoting particular values and particular ideas and spreading hate and spreading attitudes that supported the way the military chose to deal with particular issues. I would like to get your views on what sort of measures can be put into place to moderate hate speech on these platforms. And when you consider Facebook's global scope and the barriers that exist around diversity of languages, diversity of culture and local context, what can and should Facebook actually do to counter this sort of phenomena? Well, Facebook would say that they're as benign as a kitchen fork or a spoon. That's what Facebook would say, that they're merely a tool and what people choose to do with that is up to them. I mean, that's an incredibly naive and self-serving perspective because that's not what Facebook is. Facebook is social media. Social media is a part of our lives. The internet is a part of our lives. A lot of good things that come out of access to the internet, but there's also a lot of problematic things. And if your platform's been used to spread hate speech, and if your platform's been used to agitate for the murder of people and for restrictions of human rights, and your platform has clearly contributed, as the UN Human Rights Council investigators said recently, Facebook played a determining role in the violence that occurred in 2017. I mean, horrific, horrific violence in 2017. Myanmar's military targeted civilians, 300 villages burnt to the ground, appalling violence, appalling sexual violence. And how many people were displaced? Upwards of 700,000. I mean, Is that the total now? Well, it's rising by the day because yeah. people are still leaving. I mean, that gives you some idea what it must be like in parts of northern Myanmar, where media access is restricted still, and that's worth noting. Yeah, how is the perspective of the Rohingya people then able to be documented, released? How can they have a voice? Well, once they get to Bangladesh, they're free to talk. And but do they have access to different media? The interesting thing that I found when I was in the camps as the crisis was ongoing and the interesting thing about talking to particularly younger people at that time was they said it's the first time they're able to talk freely because they're not nervous about what the Myanmar authorities are going to do to them in the camp because they're outside of Myanmar. 
So once they get to Bangladesh, they have opportunities to do that. No, not enough. I mean, there's real concerns about you know, Rohingya having a say in how their own camps are run. I mean, that's something that, that needs to be addressed, but certainly better than the situation that exists in northern Rakhine State, where media access is limited. Humanitarian access is highly restricted. That's a great concern that it's really unclear how bad the situation is there, but we know it's pretty bad. It's quite interesting. We had a lecture last semester from BBC Media Action, and they were discussing how in European refugee camps that receive Syrian refugees, how crucial it was actually for them to be able to have mobile phones, have access to the internet, to be able to contact those back home or to get information about how they could be helped and what their situation was. Would you say that there is that sort of access for the Rohingyas in Bangladesh then? It's not as simple as that. They're not citizens of Bangladesh. They ought to be recognised as citizens of Myanmar. So there are issues with access to Bangladesh domestic SIM cards. So it's not as straightforward as now that they're in Bangladesh, they can get a mobile phone and a Bangladesh SIM card because they don't have passports, they don't have Bangladesh citizenship. So it's not quite as straightforward as as it might otherwise be for a whole range of domestic reasons in Bangladesh that Bangladesh probably needs to make exceptions in terms of how things work for the large numbers of refugees that have been pushed into their country. But my real concern is what is happening in northern Myanmar because the media can't get in and humanitarian actors are very restricted. And things prior to the 2017 crisis were pretty dire. And I can't imagine they've improved much since then. So what are the counter-narratives? I mean, not everybody is nationalistic, I guess. And you did mention in your lecture that in urban areas, young people have different views. And you also mentioned the hashtag my friend and hashtag friendship has no boundaries campaigns, which happen on Facebook. So, you know, as you said, Facebook is a tool. There's two sides to it. It can be extremely negative and dangerous, but also very positive. So can you speak more about the other side of this narrative? I mean, Myanmar is a very young country, and this is something that I think contributes to some of the aggression from the military and some among the monkhood, because they understand that Myanmar is demographically a very young country. More people in Myanmar were born after the 1990 election than before it, which says that there could be wholesale social change in Myanmar in the coming years, or not, but there could be. What I've seen is that among some young people, and I I don't want to sort of characterise every young person in Myanmar, uh, there is some acknowledgement among some youth activists that the mistreatment of groups like the Rohingya, it shames everyone in Myanmar. Some youth activists have acknowledged that and have said that they're concerned about the mistreatment of the Rohingya and they're concerned about the language that's been used to describe people who are of the Rohingya community. And that gives me some hope that as time goes by, that as, as those young people move closer to political influence and political power, that we can see some change. But they're the people that the international community need to be supporting. They should be putting resources into educating and training those young people that have expressed concerns about human rights, because that's the potential to have a very positive future for Myanmar. And the same among ethnic minorities. The simple reality is that there are a lot of ethnic groups in Myanmar that are mistreated too. Yeah, what you say about the possibilities of new perspectives, maybe new narratives, there's a huge possibility, but it is in a balance at the moment. When you consider the case of the Reuters journalists, Walon and Kyo so who are young people who want to speak about what's happening, want to challenge 
the Rohingya crisis and other crises, I'm sure, and want to challenge the authorities as well, but are now in prison for doing just that. Well, two young men who wanted to tell the truth about their country uh, because brave men who feel that that's important. Two journalists doing exactly what we would want in any society where journalists get to tell the truth about what's going on. And they were set up by the authorities and they're currently in jail. And they needn't be. Aung San Suu Kyi has it within her power to have them released and she chooses not to. They uncovered the truth of an atrocity committed against a group of Rohingya. They reported it and they've been terribly treated for telling the truth and they ought to be released. These are the sort of stories that, as you were saying, need to be supported by the international community. We ought to stop rolling out the red carpet for for people like Aung San Suu Kyi while she's locking up journalists. It's as simple as that. She should not be able to freely discuss other matters, trade and other things, while she's locking up journalists. Countries like the UK need to be much more forthright in their actions. They need to be far less concerned about doing trade deals and far more concerned about supporting human rights. Just to close our conversation, what are your insights on what the future might hold in terms of this crisis and how it's mediated? Well, I I think not a lot's going to change in the short term. Myanmar has a deal with Bangladesh for the return of Rohingya to Myanmar. But part of the deal is that it has to be voluntary. And the Rohingya, certainly those that I've spoken to, say they don't want to return in circumstances where their rights are not going to be recognised. They consider Myanmar their country. They're very proud to be from there. They support democracy, but they also believe that their rights need to be respected. They need to be given access to citizenship rights and their human rights need to be safeguarded. And symbolically, I mean, this is the the really fascinating thing in terms of the politics of it. Aung San Suu Kyi's refusal to release journalists for telling the truth about atrocities committed against Rohingya just highlights the fact that were ordinary Rohingya to return to Myanmar, chances are their circumstances simply would not improve at all. Well, thank you so much, Ronan. A lot of insights and history and hopefully some positive possibilities. I guess the thing to leave you with is that many people have taken an interest in what's happening in Myanmar. I mean, one of the immediate things needs to happen is that the military needs to get out of politics. For the future of Myanmar, that needs to happen, that ultimately... When you have a military that doesn't answer to any civilian authority, you're going to have problems long term. For our listeners, to discover more about this topic, you can access the following resources available in the show notes on our website. Discover more about Ronan Lee's work on his website, www.ronanlee.com, and follow him on Twitter at Ronan underscore Lee. And you can read the New York Times article on how the military in Myanmar used Facebook, a genocide incited on Facebook with posts from Myanmar's military. This article from Wired, how Facebook's rise fueled chaos and confusion in Myanmar, is a good overview on the role of Facebook in Myanmar. To learn more about changes to press censorship laws and some implications of this in 2012, read the New York Times article, Myanmar abolishes censorship of private publications. And for an overview of the current 
state of press censorship, read the Al Jazeera article, Myanmar Free Press Hopes Wither. The Reuters special report, Dangerous News, How Two Young Reporters Shook Myanmar, gives further background to the media pressures on journalists in the country. And read Ronan Lee's article on how Buddhist nationalist groups in Myanmar have used Facebook to swamp public opinion with anti-Muslim speech. Facebook is hurting democracy in Myanmar. The Guardian article that questions the role of Facebook as a media platform, is Facebook a publisher? In public it says yes, but in court it says no. And watch Ronan Lee's analysis of Aung San Suu Kyi's position on the Rohingya crisis from Al Jazeera's feature, Aung San Suu Kyi's speech analysed. And also watch Ronan Lee's interview on BBC World News following the flight of 60,000 Rohingya refugees to Bangladesh in September 2017. Finally, learn more about the hashtag MyFriend and hashtag Friendship Has No Boundaries campaigns in the Mashable article, Students in Myanmar Start Selfie Campaign to Promote Tolerance. You can find us online at www.soascodingclub, follow us on Facebook at SOAS Coding Club, and on Twitter at SOAS Coding Club. We broadcast every two weeks, so tune in to discover what's to come in global digital futures. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.